Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Katie Stockton joins us. She is with Fairlead, where she does technical analysis. Fairlead's very appropriate because right now, Francine Lacroix is trying to get to Rome out of London. Can't do it. So the Royal Navy's coming in. They're going to try to put her through Gibraltar and around, take the long way <laughs> around. And on that Royal Navy boat will be a Fairlead, right? There you go. What's right. a Fairlead? Well, it keeps the lines on the boat from getting tangled. And it seems... You know, market timing is so important, right? And we want to keep a clear yeah. perspective and obviously have a fair lead as we approach the market. Are the moving averages of the equity markets giving you a fair lead right now? I think so, but probably less so than last year. The moving averages are really relevant in a trending tape. And I would argue that this year is more likely less of a trending tape, something that is characterized by more swings to the upside and downside, and for that reason, we'll be forced to be a bit more short-term in our focus. How do you gauge what's been happening with the S&P 500, say, when we've had that sharp drawdown, then this aggressive snapback as well? Does that provide you with some nerves? It does. In the corrective phase, which was was very short-lived, of course, we saw sentiment, which was the biggest risk to the market from a technical perspective, in my opinion, go from extremely bullish, which is a contrarian negative, to extremely bearish in the matter of days, really. So that swift decline in sentiment was um, indicative of a tradable low as the S&P 500 tested its 200-day moving average. Now, the snapback that we've seen is not uncommon obviously fast and furious in, in and of itself, but now seems to be losing short-term momentum, which puts the market in store for a possible retest. And by retest, I mean a return to support. Well, Casey, where is that support? The 200-day moving average still for the S&P 500 can be considered initial support and maybe a bit aggressive as a downside target yeah. for this retest. Uh, nevertheless, it, the long-term uptrend is still very much intact. You've mentioned sentiment. How important is sentiment still? And, and more importantly, perhaps for our listeners, Katie, how do you gauge where sentiment actually is? Well, I think it's really paramount because it is a driving force behind the markets, especially in markets that are so momentum-driven and really uh, top-down oriented, right? Really paying attention to the macro data. So I think it's very important. The way I like to gauge it is using transactional measures. So instead of adhering to the investor polls where they're asking, how do you feel about the marketplace? But rather looking at how investors are positioning, you can do that via the VIX, via the put call ratios. There's um, a fear and greed index out there that we use quite a bit. I don't follow volume, and I know you pay attention to it. When Luis Yamada talks about distribution, that's the back and forth of what's going on right now. What's the back and forth show you? You know, the volumes, I I don't give it a whole lot of weight either. Mm-hmm. Um, when I do pay attention is when volume spikes, because that's indicative. And isn't the kind message of here really didn't, right? It, well, it did spike into the tradable low. So that was important. It was somewhat climactic, uh, but it has certainly spiked higher than that. Uh, it can be indicative of inflection points. But volume as a whole has really lost its value, in my opinion, as a an indicator okay. of trend. So distribution would be a little bit less relevant as it pertains to volume. Okay. Katie Stockton, thank you so much with Fairlead, and she will return for a longer bit. But uh, news news overcomes all this morning. Katie Stockton, thank you so much. A constructive view on the, uh, the markets wrapped around uh, the Standard & Poor's 500. 
Uh, much to talk about today, but we're going to digress here right now on really important issues for all Americans out of the various California pension uh, plans. Right now, Chris Elman joins us, and he is not with Kelpers P. He is with Kelsters S. Good morning, sir. What is the difference between Kelsters and Kelpers? In a nutshell, uh, we cover the teachers. They cover state employees and municipal employees. City, towns, in that. Right. I've read in the last couple days of real challenges within not your shop, but their shop over different accounting and their relationship with their clients who are towns and villages. To begin with, does Kelsters have the same challenges that Kelpers has? Not to the extent that they do because it's all about liability management. You know, I think when everybody talks about pension and unfunded liabilities, they always focus on the investment side. But the reality is you got to pay attention to the liability side and the contributions. They've got more uh, municipalities that set different benefit levels. In our case, it's one statewide benefit to Yours all the teachers. Yours is a simpler shop. Your mathematics yes, is simpler. That is correct. There, there, there's A lot of people are saying what's going on in California is a crucible for Illinois, for Dallas, and frankly, coast to coast, the rest of America. Are you guys simply ahead of a debate that's going to be five or ten years down the road for the rest of unfunded America? Um, I don't think – I think we're ahead of the debate, but I don't think that we're the, the crucible or the center. <laughs> I think that you're going to see other states – and as you said, municipalities where they didn't do a good job of managing the liabilities. They didn't pay attention to the benefits. And most importantly, they didn't consistently pay the mortgage. They skipped payments. They had payment holidays. What do you mean by that, pay the mortgage? For your readers or your listeners, they understand they're not paying the actuarial assumed interest rate. Every year there's a required rate that you've got to pay in. You've got to contribute. The town has to pay to Kelpers or the teachers have to pay to Kelsters. That is correct. Got it. I, best example, picture a 401k. Yeah. If you don't invest in your 401k, oh, for a couple of years when you're 20, a couple of years when you're 30, all of a sudden you, you get to 50 and you're not going to have enough money because you didn't yeah. invest and contribute regularly. John, that it's defines, the contributions that are the focus. And, and John, that defines about three quarters of America. It's right a there. very, very <clears throat> important issue. But on the other side, something that you have to try and manage, Chris, is the return assumptions. What are the basic assumptions for returns now and how have they shifted over the last 10 years? Yeah, they've come down over the last 10 years. There have been lots of critics that they haven't come down enough. But remember, we're trying to make a forecast for the next 30 years. What's the reasonable rate of return that a diversified portfolio could earn over the next 30 years? And don't just look at today's environment where interest rates are. Think about the innovation that's coming. Think about the growth of the rest of the world, the emerging markets. So for us, yeah, answer in a simple number is 7%. Warren Buffett would say that's too high, but I would say if you look at over 30 years with a little bit of inflation, I think we can achieve 7%. We have in the past 30 years. We have yep. turned 8% in the last 30 years. How difficult would it be to actually capture those growth assumptions in public markets when so many of these growth opportunities aren't going public, they're staying private? And I'm talking obviously specifically about equities and very much more so about one specific tech sector in technology. Do you see that shift that more growth opportunities will remain in private hands and they won't be available 
as a public opportunity? I'd answer your question in two ways. If you're a 401k, 403b investor, it's going to be hard for you to match our return at 7% because we can gain access to that private capital market. We had we met with uh, uh, Jay Clayton from SEC yesterday, and one yeah. of his observations was that there's only about 4,100 publicly traded companies in America today. When I started in this business 30 years ago, there were over 7,000. So over half of the companies basically have gone and stayed private or are not going public because there's a cost to it. That's a huge investment opportunity we can take advantage of, and there's growth in that private. And there's growth in the private sector, and there's actually a huge amount of investment opportunity there. They can access all the capital they want. The story's changed so much because they used to have to go public to access the capital, right. and now PE is just opening up funds and people are throwing money at them. Do we need to improve the opportunity set for retail to get access to private markets? The opportunities that used to be public and now remain private, do we need to open that up a little bit more, Chris? Um, I think that the, that the private equity firms are always trying to figure out how to do that. That's been on people's mind of how do you daily value or how do you take private equity and fit it into a 401k option? I'm not really sure that they should because that's a very sophisticated market, a lot of volatility. You just use the expression that PE is throwing money at companies. That's not a good environment. Well, you don't want to do that. People are throwing money at PE to do something. They're also there, on record cash piles. There's no question the world is awash with capital. Never in Tom Keene's life have you seen this much money around the world that's able for long-term investment. Uh, Just on. think of the sovereign wealth funds that are out there. They're, they're 10 times our size. Yeah, I'd go with that. But after the Napoleonic Wars, it was a little rich as well. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Equity markets uh, have a multiple on them that is nifty 50-ish. Are you able to go down asset size and go from comfortable big caps down to mid cap and small cap or do you have such a mass of money it just isn't worth buying mid caps and small caps no we are a diversified portfolio tom we're into mid caps and how do you buy do you buy them through indexes yes indexes and then direct active management that's the one place we think the market's a little bit less efficient so we'll use active managers despite the cost but i think in opportunities particularly in emerging markets around the world yeah. not even just large cap and mid cap and emerging markets yeah we can take advantage of that so you were the french teacher in san jose and she says what did you do last year what what's your what was your total return last year to your, your shareholders? Last year, our total Blended, return yeah. um, was, uh, I'm going to say, 14%. I actually, I'm still okay. past 2017. And I operate on a fiscal year basis. So I'm really focused at June 30s. And, and where do we perform? We're but doing well. We're doing double digits. a lot digits. of hedge funds, you captured a lot of the up 20% SPX. Absolutely, because over half of my portfolio has a beta exposure to the global equity market. So I'm in U.S. and in non-U.S. stocks, and I'm going to move with those markets. Uh, but over the right. long term, we think we're going to do quite well. What's your R squared to S&P 500 or something? How tight do you manage to the benchmark indexes? Within the equity portfolio, uh, very tight. Our tracking error yeah. is actually pretty darn tight because we don't use a lot of active management. We're 70% we're passive in the USA, 50% passive in the non-US market. So 70 very tight. passive. That's fascinating. Yep. We had that big conversation with uh, Warren Buffett and the bet against protege partners. Are you saying that's the best way to position over a period of time that could be multiple decades? We think that if you're going to invest billions of dollars, the most efficient and cost-effective way to do it is, in, is to own the U.S. market as one whole group, as one basket of stocks. Yeah. There aren't a lot of Warren Buffetts out there. 
Uh, it would be great if we had quite a few options, but there's only one Oracle of Omaha. Chris, final question. We have a, a limited time. I just want to ask you, how much has that equity position increased as a percentage of the overall investment portfolio over the last couple of years? It's actually decreased. Interesting. We took Why? profits. Well, as this equity market was hitting all-time new highs, U.S. and non-U.S., we were taking profits away and diversifying into other areas. We want to take it down below 50% of the portfolio. Mm. Okay, well, thank you so much, Craig. Uh, Chris Elman, excuse me, Chris Elman, thank you so much with Kelsters this morning. And now joining us, uh, for all of us, the most important interview of the day, without question, on your real estate, on John Farrow's real estate. Uh, Jonathan Miller joins us with Miller Samuel. John, nobody keeps statistics like you, Miami, New York, and really nationwide. What's the trend right now into John Farrow's spring season? Well, we have two things happening. One, uh, if you look at the, the residential side, so far, very little uh, change in attitude from what was expected to be a pretty serious drag on housing uh, uh, re regarding the uh, the tax reform. Um, on the retail side, uh, we're we're delving further into the retail apocalypse, where uh, we're having a significant number of retail outlets running into trouble and trying to uh, renegotiate with landlords. Um, it's sort of a an after effect of the financial crisis combined with massively overbuilding retail across the U.S. Is price adjusting for the retail apocalypse? Is that happening quick enough? Oh, no. Uh, the, it, just like we, we have talked about before on Bloomberg with uh, the uh, the development boom, uh, it takes uh, landlords or property owners two to three years to really adjust to current market conditions. And we're just yeah. really something that began two or three years ago. We're just starting to see retailers or landlords uh, begin to adjust right. and they need to. Okay. The big complaint I get, John Miller, is Michael Dell takes a place in a big shiny tower and everybody goes <laughs> mental. That's not the real world. And we say good morning to Mr. Dell, who's been very supportive of our work. Um, John Miller, if you go down the income food chain, the number one complaint I hear from everybody are the income qualifications given high rents in many cities around the nation. Is that pressure still there? Oh, yes. Uh, credit conditions uh, in multifamily housing, uh, you know, uh, specifically residential rental, remain very high, that there's a, a strong risk aversion, uh, despite sure. uh, growing um, uh, uh, need for the use of concessions. So, for example, in uh, New York, uh, uh, the at least 50 percent of all rental activity has some form of landlord concession. And when you talk about new development, uh, all the product that's been built over the five, five or six years, it's anywhere from 60 to 80 percent have some form of concession. So w what we're seeing is an oversupply, whether we're talking about uh, yeah. luxury residential or we're talking about retail. Okay, but the, the issue, John, and, and Bloomberg has an agreement, folks. I can't live too close to John Farrell because in case there was an accident, we need to be far <laughs> apart. But, but if I was to move up by John Farrell, the fact is where he lives is so fancy, there's nothing for rent. 
explain what you just said, John uh, Miller, for 10 minutes. And the fact is there's nothing for rent. How can you have both worlds? Well, so what you have is you have a massively polarized market. So uh, most of the supply that has come in on the residential side has been skewed to luxury. And so that essentially has yeah, made John. the remainder of it uh, <laughs> I, w- I want to see if Tom Keane wants to trade views out of the front window. We're not going to talk about where we live. Um, Jonathan Miller, question, and serious question. Help me out here, and it might help out some of our listeners as well. The landlord wants to put up my rent in the new renewal. I'm a captive audience. So I'm a sitting tenant. Now, if I go to another yeah. building, they're offering two months free rent on 14-month deals. It keeps happening again and again. But when I'm a sitting tenant, they're just throwing a rent increase at me. What's my best response? So uh, the best response is to act as if uh, the uh, the market is softening. Um, and if you you see a rent increase, actually landlords are are really being much more uh, uh, flexible than they have been because otherwise your option with all the um, yeah. all your other options mm-hmm. are to 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 move. Right. And so we're seeing massive use of concessions uh, to keep you in there because it's it's less expensive to bring in right. a, than bringing in a new tenant. Does San Francisco break like New York? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. That market, you know, that market. It's it's odd because we always think of uh, New York as the most expensive in the country, but that market is feeling much more pain and stress on affordability. And they're having the same problem, that there just isn't supply uh, for, as we would say, mere mortals mortals. uh, to rent. Well, thank you, John John Miller. Greatly appreciate. Uh, He's with the real estate agency, Mere Mortals. We greatly appreciate his attendance today. (laughs) John Miller, folks, is with Miller Samuel and Douglas Elliman and does the best. Uh, He parses John Burrow to Bureau, and yeah. Borough and, and down in Miami as well in Boston. It's amazing the narrowness he gets. This is a joy. George Friedman is one of our most astute analysts of the military dimension of our international politics. Chapter 5 of the next 100 years is China 2020 Paper Tiger. George Friedman joins us now, author and uh, with, of course, with Geopolitical Futures. George, do you have to rip up the next 100 years and do you have to rip up Chapter 5, Paper Tiger, after this momentous announcement of President Xi? Uh, I don't think I have to rip up anything. Uh, Look, the Chinese have a fundamental interest in controlling the South China Sea. In 10 years of pursuing this, they've gotten nowhere. No one is impressed, not even the Filipinos. Uh, the New York Times is impressed. So, you know, they can be as loud and as aggressive as they want, but yeah. the fact of the matter is they don't have the force. How do you respond to the comparisons of this historic announcement uh, from President Xi and I guess the Communist Party with what we observe from Mr. Putin today in Russia, his lengthy speech to uh, an acclaimed room? Well, uh, these are two basically constrained military powers trying to posture on the world stage as if they were much more powerful. Look, the Russians claim that they're spending only 4.2% of their GDP on defense. 
If you take a look at all the projects they've laid out, some of them extraordinarily advanced, uh, they're spending way, way more at a time when oil prices are down. So if he is serious that he's actually done this, he's repeating what the Soviet Union got crushed by in the 1980s. Star Wars competition on the one side, low oil prices. It is one thing to make a political speech. It's another thing to believe it. And we have to be very careful. Mr. Friedman, uh, during this speech, President Putin talked about two specific nuclear uh, weapon delivery systems. I'm wondering if you could uh, offer your thoughts about whether they are credible and uh, what do you believe that indicates? Well, the most important one he spoke about is that he had a cruise missile that can travel at Mach 20, 20 times the speed of sound, and deliver a nuclear weapon anywhere in the world. The only question is, why do you want a weapon like that to deliver nuclear weapons? You've got ICBMs. Uh, they're not easy to defend against. No one claims they can defend against it. Why develop a weapon of this sort at this incredible expense? Because you've got to develop materials, fuels, other things like that uh, in order to do a nuclear uh, attack. A lot of other ways to do it. I, I think they're working on it. I think a lot of countries, including the United States, are working on this. But his claim that they've got it, as like much of the speech he made, it was great campaign rhetoric. It was a good State of the Union message. But when you drill down into it, he's claiming to be developing weapons he doesn't even need. In that context, the elections, uh, as you indicate, they are coming up, what, in about 17 days. Uh, will there be any change after the election in the way Russia is governed? Well, the Russians are really trapped, as most nations are. They're trapped by an economy that never evolved, that depends on the price of oil, and they can't, produce, they can't control the price of oil. And it's not going back to 80 or 100, or at least not in the near future. So they have got this problem that limits what they can do. They also want to appear for their own public and for the world as if they were major global powers. They're not. But they can make a speech that makes them sound really frightening. Mm -hmm. And that's what they did. George, you're ensconced in the People's Republic of Austin. The territory around you maybe ought to be the most likable territory for President Trump. How do you gauge the American public support of the president's foreign policy and the budget announcements of a buildup of the military? How do you gauge that? Well, I happen to live outside of Austin in uh, Red Country. Okay. And the general view out here is they're not really interested in foreign policy nearly as much as trade issues and things like that, and they don't quite understand it. But they want a military it, buildup, right? They, they do, but it's not, a, it's not a Bernie issue. I mean, this is not something that they're really, uh, they're really caught up on social issues. As for the people inside of Austin, they hate anything he does if he does it. So what you really have, the social reality is you've got two groups. None of them are particularly coherent in terms of policy, but each have one basic belief that the other group really is vile. And you know, try to figure out what it is that each wants, it gets really murky really fast. Okay, well, let's take something like the F-35, of which I have almost zero knowledge. 
the if we throw more money at the Pentagon, which I believe is what we're going to do, does George Friedman have a confidence we're going to build a better F-35? Well, you've caught me on a bad subject because I think the F-35 is a really bad idea. Well, that's why we're talking it's, to you. It's a wildly <clears throat> expensive plane. It's extremely complicated. And we can only afford to build a few. We're building an Air Force where we can't afford to take losses. So, I mean, you shoot down F-35, you're taking out the GDP of El Salvador. Uh, They're about $100 million that, a copy, and that's uh, with, a, with a price cut. And that's not including the long-term maintenance and everything else that you have to build into it. It's very hard to maintain. So the answer is we need a national strategy that defines who we're likely to fight and then devise weapons that are likely to do something about it. Where we really do need the money is in developing the manpower that we need in the Army. This Army has been fighting for 16 years. They are tired. A lot of the key people have retired. Uh, I'll be personal. My daughter, who was a major, uh, went on three tours to uh, Iraq. They told her, you're going back in nine months, and she threw in the towel. Uh, That army that we have, the personnel, have been used up and ground down. So where you need the money is to build up the force, its morale, its training, things like that. The hardware we're pretty good at, and the hardware we need to develop can be developed out of that money. But what we really need is an army uh, to fight with those forces, with those weapons. Uh, Mr. Friedman, the the book that I believe you're working on is is titled The New American Century. Can you offer people maybe in about the 30 seconds the overall gist of, of what you're trying to convey? Well, the gist of it is every 50 years, the United States goes into an economic crisis. The last one was the Ronald Reagan crisis, the one he solved. Uh, the one before that was FDRs. And going back into history to Andrew Jackson, this is the way we work. We are now entering the closing phase of the Reagan cycle, and we are seeing the beginnings of the crazy politics like we had in in 1968, when the assassinations were taking place, riots in Chicago and so mm-hmm. on. So this is a normal process. This is how we do things. And what appears to be the end of the United States, well, it's simply the way we go through it, and there's a huge sense of despair at the end of an age. But the Reagan period is drawing to in a hole, and a new one is emerging. Al George Friedman, thank you so much. Never enough time. He's with... Geopolitical future is a, a terse perspective on our uh, military and its linkage into our political economics. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.